All right. Well, last week, Tim here at Two Rivers and uh, Justin out at Mount Juliet introduced our new series in Mark, Mark by talking about the baptism of Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Mark chapter 1 as we're going to be continuing on our series by looking at the temptation of Jesus. Now in Mark chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, it says, immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness, right? Drove Jesus into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels were serving him. Jesus was driven into the wilderness. Now think about that. Have you ever wondered or thought about how Jesus survived for 40 days in the wilderness? I mean, think about it. 40 days in the wilderness. I wonder how much he was like Bear Grylls. You know, the British guy from Man vs. Wild. Like, I just, I seriously, I wonder, did he have the skills of Bear Grylls? Or, I mean, probably more so, right? I mean, he's, he's God, obviously. But, but seriously, in the midst of the desert, in the midst of the wilderness, did Jesus wear Gore-Tex, right? Did we know about that technology before it existed? Uh, did he use high-performance outdoor gear? How many knots did he know how to tie? And could he start a fire himself? And how, you know, how fast did it take him to do that, right? So if you were in the wilderness... How long do you think you could survive? I mean, for Christina and I, our version of camping is glamping, right? I mean, I don't, we are not a camping sort of family. In fact, we don't, I mean, glamping is, I mean, we'd rather just go stay at a hotel <laughs> and go hike around in the wilderness and go back to the hotel with a shower. Honestly, did Jesus know these principles around survival and how did he, how did he survive in the desert. Let's look at Matthew chapter 4, uh, verse 1, starting from verse 1, and let's look at the account of uh, a little bit of an expanded account around the temptation of Jesus, just for a little bit more context as to what happened. We don't necessarily know how he survived in the desert. We know he did, uh, but let's look particularly at the interaction he had with the devil at the end of his 40 days in the desert. So that's Matthew chapter 4, starting from verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Then the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. He answered, It is written, Man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will give his angels orders concerning you, and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. a stone. Jesus told him, it is also written, do not test the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to them, I'll give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus told him, go away, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him and angels came and began to serve him. I think some people might read this account of Jesus 40 days in the desert and, and think, hey, Jesus was fully God, so that's probably why he was able to go 40 days and 40 nights without eating, right? And I get that. Obviously, Jesus was fully God, but at the same time, Jesus was also fully man, 
Otherwise, he wouldn't have been as hungry as he was, as we read in verse 2. So when you look at the 40 days, and at the end of the 40 days, the interaction that he had with the devil, Jesus was probably spiritually strong, because we see the way that he reacted and responded to the devil. But we can also guess, because of his hunger, that he was weak physically, right? I, I wonder how many of us get hangry uh, when we miss a meal or two, right? And how hangry Jesus must have been after 40 days in the desert without eating. And, and think about the last time you're hangry, right? Hungry, angry at the same time. Uh, your judgment, decision-making skills, temper, patience, they, they're probably at the, you know, at, at the breaking point, aren't they? And perhaps that's why Jesus, uh, Satan tempted Jesus at the end of the 40 days and nights rather than at the beginning. Maybe the devil thought that it's in these moments when we are hangry uh, that, that we are the weakest, not only physically, but also spiritually. Well, thank the Lord that when we are weak, uh, that God makes us strong, right? In 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9 and 11, it says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So all of this begs the question, right? Why did Jesus go into the wilderness in the first place? Right? Why, why did that happen? Why would he subject himself to all of this? I mean, it's not, think about it, the wilderness. It's not like it was Instagrammable, Right? It's not like he just went, got the Instagram, and left. I mean, it was 40 days, and Instagram wasn't around. And it's not like he had his own survival show either, right, where he had a crew following him around, and, and there was some, you know, some sort of teaching moment for this. So why did Jesus go into the wilderness in the first place? Now, one of the neat things about the Bible, right, and, and one of the neat things about reading through the Bible and I love Bible reading plans that get you through the entire Bible in a year or, or maybe even two years. Or, and, but, but what I love about not just reading the New Testament, but reading the Old and looking at it back and forth, is when you look at the whole Old and New Testament, what you see is you begin to actually see these overarching themes and threads throughout the Scripture. And, and these themes and these threads throughout the Old to the New, sometimes you miss if you only stay maybe in the Proverbs or in the Psalms or in a few of the Gospels. You miss some of these. And these overarching threads and themes are some of the most, um, most encouraging lessons that we can learn through the Scriptures. And one of them really is, is this, right? It's, it's that we see in Mark 1. It's, it's that we see here in Matthew 4 that God uses moments in the wilderness to shape transform, deepen, and prepare his people, including his own son. In other words, God uses the desert to shape our character and deepen our prayer life. We see that all throughout the scriptures, that he uses moments of wilderness in the people, in his people, in us, to shape our character and deepen our prayer life. Just think about Moses, right? After wrestling with his call, he entered the wilderness, where God had to do a deep work in his heart before he could use him. 
God used the wilderness to shape Moses' character and deepen his prayer life. The same with David. After being anointed as king, he was chased by Saul into the wilderness. And it was in those moments in the Psalms that we see God shape his character and deepen his prayer life. And how interesting, actually, that King Saul didn't have a moment like that in his life. At the end of David's life, we see also that he was once again chastened into the wilderness because he was chased out by his son Absalom, where once again his character was shaped and his, um, his prayer life was deepened. Jonah as well, right? Jonah was chased into the wilderness. I mean, it was, you know, the stomach of a whale, but it was still this sense of the wilderness. Uh, the Apostle Paul too, right? After on the road to Damascus... He was, he entered into a period of three years of preparation. Whether it was the wilderness or not, we don't know. But he encountered God, received a new call, and then he entered into a time of wilderness. God led Jesus into the desert by the Spirit so that Jesus could come to terms with his calling. Right? Jesus was baptized, as we saw last week. Jesus received his call. He knew that God was going to be using him. He knew his humanity. He was, and and, I mean, he was 30. He understood the humanity of his life. And he was entering into this period where he was going to be discovering his divinity. And so that he could learn that his life was not his own, but fully God's, Jesus entered into the desert so that he could live a life like David did rather than Saul. It was to deepen his prayer life, right? It was to shape his character. And ultimately, it was so that Jesus could recognize the three truths that we are going to be uncovering today in this message as he was being tempted by Satan. It's amazing, right? Jesus is the better Moses, Jesus is the better David. Jesus is the better Jonah, and he is the better Paul. And and not only better, but what was imperfect and incomplete with each of those leaders was made complete with Jesus. Jesus, in a sense, in the desert here, completed what these other characters couldn't. And by us walking through this passage and discovering Jesus' interaction with the devil... I believe that God is going to equip you and I to walk into the calling that he has prepared each and every one of us into. So let's start with the first temptation in verse 3. The first temptation from Satan, who is the father of all lies or the accuser. And the temptation is the temptation of self-sufficiency. We see that in verse 3 and 4. Then the tempter approached him. And said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And he answered, it is written, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus could have turned these stones into bread, but that would have put him into the camp of King Saul rather than the camp of King David. Right? If you were to have your hand, you know, on Matthew 4, and, and let's go to 1 Samuel 13, verse 7, because what we'll see here in 1 Samuel 13, verse 7, is how King Saul, right, instead of waiting for Samuel to come, basically went ahead and turned the stones into bread, essentially, right? So 1 Samuel 13, verse 7, 
Uh, Saul, however, was still at Gilgal, and all his troops were gripped with fear. He waited seven days for the appointed time that Samuel had set, but Samuel didn't come to Gilgal, and the troops were deserting him. So Saul said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. Then he offered the burnt offering. Just as he finished offering the burnt offering, Samuel arrived. He didn't wait for Samuel. So Saul went out to greet him, and Samuel asked, what have you done Saul answered, when I saw that the troops were deserting me and you didn't come within the appointed days and the Philistines were gathering at Michmash, I thought the Philistines will now descend on me at Gilgal and I haven't sought the Lord's favor. So I forced myself to offer the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, you have been foolish. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. It was at this time that the Lord would have permanently established your reign over Israel, but now your reign will not endure. Right? We see here that Saul just went ahead and turned the stones into bread, essentially. Right? Verses, let's look at 1 Samuel uh, verse, uh, chapter 24. Let's compare Saul's interaction with David, who David here could have turned the stones into bread by killing Saul, but he chose not to. Right? We see it in verse, uh, chapter 24, verse 1. When Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines... He was told, David is in the wilderness near En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 of Israel's fit young men and went to look for David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. When Saul came to the sheep pens along the road, a cave was there, and he went in to relieve himself. David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave, so they said to him, Look, this is the day the Lord told you about. I will hand your enemy over to you so that you can go and do to him whatever you desire. Then David got up and secretly cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David's conscience both uh, bothered him. Uh, his conscience bothered him because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, I swear before the Lord I would never do such a thing to my Lord. The, I, I would, the Lord's anointed. I'll never lift my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. With these words, David persuaded his men, and he did not let them rise up against Saul. Right? So we see here in this interaction, if we were to go back to Matthew 4, how David chose not to turn the stones into bread, where Saul did that. There are definitely moments in our lives where God tells us to go, right? But in fact, there are actually many more moments where he tells us to wait, because he is actually working and preparing a place ahead of us. But do you know the difference? Do you know in a moment of discernment, in a moment of needing to make a decision, do you know how to tell the difference between going and waiting? One of the things that we discover here is that prayer is action. Waiting actually, waiting passively by trying to, you know, burn the clock, watch Netflix, you know, drain everything out, try to keep yourself busy so you don't have to worry. That's passive waiting. But when you're waiting on the Lord, waiting in prayer, waiting in fasting, waiting in reading in the word, you know, that's actually active waiting. And that's waiting on the Lord and saying, hey, God, I know that I can't do anything right now in this moment of waiting, but I know that you can, that you are, so I'm going to submit myself to you in prayer. Prayer is not passive. Prayer is active. Prayer is us surrendering our will and our ways and asking God to move on our behalf. 
Now, what we see here in this first temptation, right, this temptation of self-sufficiency, is that the world tells us this, right? The world tells us to pick ourselves up by our own bootstraps, right? That's the temptation of self-sufficiency. We see it everywhere. We, we see the world tell us, hey, uh, when you get knocked down, get back up again, right? Wash your face. If you have the power, use it. If you have the privilege, walk in it, right? That's the temptation of this world is this temptation of self-sufficiency, of self-help. But that's not new. These are all the age-old ancient lies of the devil. It's the lies and the temptation of self-sufficiency. But Jesus here shows us that there is another way, that there is actually a better way, that instead of relying on what we can see with our eyes and, and what we can conjure up on our own, the better way is to live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Right? This is because the word of God is a double-edged sword, and it's the only thing that can cut through the lies of the evil one and the lies of our age. Right? I'm not saying don't read any other book. Right? Books are great. I love reading. But don't let that replace your time with the word of God. Because the Word of God, hand in hand with other books, the Word of God will give you the lens to know what is truth and what is falsehood. So are you spending more time reading other people's thoughts about God? Or are you spending more time reading God's Word? (laughs) I love what it says in Hebrews 4 verse 12. For the Word of God is living. Right? No other book is living. For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So in moments when you are tempted to be self-sufficient, to pick yourself up, when you are trying to discern what is next and your temptation is to go and act rather than go go and wait, I encourage you to turn to the Word of God. If you don't know what to pray, open up the Psalms and may the Psalms be your prayer because God will direct you through His Word. I mean, isn't that why it says in Ephesians 6 that the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit? Now, I love how Jesus responds to each temptation with, right, look at it there, it is written. Right, to every temptation from the evil one, he responds with Scripture. That is why the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. Right? Every other piece of armor is defensive. The only offensive part of the armor is the sword of the Spirit, which is not your words, but it's the Word of God. And that's why Jesus shows us here to every temptation, he says, it is written, right? Psalm 119.11 says, I have hidden your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. Right? This is a sound example for us to, you know, for the importance of knowing, memorizing, and practicing scripture. Right? So we see here that the first temptation that the evil one puts against Jesus, but also against us, is the temptation of self-sufficiency. We also see in verse 5 the temptation of fame. 
right? Verse 5, then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will give his angels orders concerning you and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus told him, it is also written, do not test the Lord your God. A recent research report said that 34% of children age 6 to 17 said that they were aspiring to be this when they grew up. 34% of children. Can you take a guess? And this career actually is, is more desirable than being, a, being an actor. It's, it's, it's more desirable than being a pop singer as well. YouTuber. 34% of children age 6 to 17 said that they were aspiring to be a YouTuber when they grow up. This temptation for fame is not new. It's been around for millennia. It's just now that in the day and age that we are living in, the potential to become famous is now within our hands rather than within the hands of a scout or someone else. Right? We see that. Dude Perfect, Ryan's Toys Review, Logan Paul, Lily Singh. Lily Singh just got, she's a Canadian YouTuber, she just got a gig with NBC to be their, one of their late night show, show hosts. Right? I think it's the first woman to be a late night show host, plus she's Indian, plus she's Canadian. Right? And she found her start on YouTube. Right? Think about that. That's the day and age that we live in. But the temptation to fame is, um, it's not a modern invention, right? It's, it's not. It's been around for millennia because deep down inside, what is fame? Fame is a desire to be seen. That's what fame is. It's just magnified. Fame is a desire to be known, just magnified. Here's the, here's the lie about fame, though. And I love, uh, I love how Veronica Greer put it. She said this, fame is making yourself accessible to a bunch of people you don't really care about at the expense of those you do. Let me say that again. Fame is making yourself accessible to a bunch of people you don't really care about at the expense of those you do. When the devil tempted Jesus here by taking him to the top of the temple and, and telling him to throw himself down, he did it not because he thought Jesus was a thrill seeker, right? I mean, you know, how to train a dragon, how Hiccup throws himself off of his dragon, you know that, and just like floats in the air, falls down, and, and then his dragon comes and picks him, you know, Toothless comes and picks himself up. I mean, that is not Jesus, right? Jesus wasn't like this thrill seeker who's going to, you know, expect to get caught in that way. No, Satan tempted Jesus in this way because he knew that by doing this, Jesus would make the news and everyone would see it. And he was like, what better way to start your ministry than by being that guy who threw himself off the temple. No one does that. And not only did you throw yourself off the temple and probably do a bunch of flips and, you know, like, you know, or maybe you like went like this and went up in the air a little bit, but angels caught you, right? Imagine the start of his ministry being like that, right? 
the devil said, just look, if you do this, everyone will see you, everyone will know you, everyone will recognize you, and they will fully accept that you are God. You will not be doubted in any way. People will just believe you right away. Yet through the scriptures, Jesus responds with the truth that testing the Lord is not the way, right? Oftentimes, think about Gideon, right? Gideon, the fleece. Oftentimes we refer back to Gideon's fleece story and we use this testing of the Lord as a positive example. But it's not. That's not the point of Gideon and the fleece. That story in the scriptures is actually more about God's mercy, his grace, and his faithfulness than it is a way to discern God's ways. Yet we misconstrue it. We see here, right, Satan tempted Jesus with the temptation of self-sufficiency, that he tempted Jesus with the temptation of fame, but we also see in verse 8 that he tempts Jesus with the temptation of things, right, the temptation of things. Verse 8, we read this, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor, and he said to them, he said to him, I will give you all these things if you'll fall down and worship me. Then Jesus told him, Go away, Satan, once again, right? For it is written, right? The word of God, the sword of the spirit. Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him and angels came and began to serve him. In a day and age where tidying up with Marie Kondo seems to be the hottest thing around, (laughs) the temptation of things doesn't doesn't seem to be that big of a temptation anymore, right? Especially when we are only, according to Marie Kondo, supposed to be keeping those things that speak to the heart and discarding items that no longer spark joy. Right? She says, thank them for their service and let them go. Right? It's interesting advice. Uh, I, you know, it's, it's, kind of, it's interesting even the, the show that she has on Netflix. It's Hoarders 10 years later. You know that TLC? It's, it's just redone Because that temptation of things, as much as Marie Kondo is very popular right now, the temptation of things just hasn't gone away. But the reason Marie Kondo and this method of living is so popular is because we just live in an age of overabundance. Right? But the fact is we all need things. And regardless of how much you have, there's always a greater and greater temptation for more, right? I mean, how many of you want a nicer car. You might not need a nicer car, but how many of you would like a nicer car? Right? Yeah. I mean, I drive a Nissan Versa around, got it for good mileage, got it used, you know, very, uh, you know, I got it used because, you know, it's, you save a lot of money rather than new and, you know, all this, uh, would I rather be driving a Tesla? Of course. (laughs) If anyone wants to gift me with a Tesla, hey, you know, I will gift the Versa to someone else, right? I mean, seriously, I'm not even going to sell that thing. But do we need it? No, of course I don't need it. My iPhone 8 does the trick. Do I want an iPhone 10? Sure. But I don't need it. My house does the trick. Do I want granite countertops? Sure, of course I want granite countertops. But it doesn't really matter, does it? I mean, we want more 
right? We want more financial freedom. We want more flexibility. We want another promotion. We want more and more and more. But do we really need it, right? This is the temptation of things. And the devil tempted Jesus millennia ago on this and 2,000 years ago on this, and he still tempts us today with this. But in the face of it all, right, Jesus straight out tells the devil and reminds us that all of these things that, that we want, right, the things that the devil tempts us with for more and more and more, all of these things, the reason they're so tempting is because they actually want us, they want our worship. Right? Every single one of these things are begging for our worship. And that's why Jesus responds, worship the Lord your God, right? Because he knows the connection that things, I mean, just think about the Old Testament, right? When Moses went up, when Moses went up and, and his brother Aaron, you know, he was out on, on the mountain for too long and his, Aaron was there, his brother Aaron was there and Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments and Aaron's like, I don't know what happened. I just threw all this gold in the fire and it came out as a calf. I, I, it just happened, right? I mean, like, it's a thing. It's a thing. Right? And we can't see God, can we? I mean, that's why our, our heart is penchant and, and it leans toward wanting to build idols, have idols, create idols. And I love the symbol of the cross. But I love how it's empty. Because it shows us that Jesus has resurrected <laughs> That he's not just poorly nailed to a cross, but he has defeated death. He has risen from the dead. And he, he, he is giving us new life and allowing us to and inviting us to step into new life where he will grant us freedom from self-sufficiency, where he will grant us freedom from fame, freedom from things, freedom from everything else that is capturing and holding our hearts. When we worship God, that is the only way that we can find true joy, true satisfaction, true fulfillment, and true contentment. So when you look at these three lies, and I want to invite the worship team up, when you look at these three temptations, the temptation of self-sufficiency, the temptation of fame, and the temptation of things, what is most grabbing your heart? Let's close our eyes right now. Which of these temptations grabs hold of your heart right now? Which of these temptations are you struggling with at the moment? Is it to be your own boss? Is it to be the king of your own life? Is it to control your, uh, you and, and your children and your workplace and everyone around you and your situation? Is it the control, the temptation for self-sufficiency? Or maybe the temptation is for fame. And you're just constantly checking how many likes you get your social media status, your, your, you know, you know, how many followers you have and the comments you're receiving. Maybe it's your desire to be known. Or maybe it's the temptation for things and you're just constantly lusting after more 
rather than living a life of gratitude for what there is already, what God has already blessed you with. Which of these three temptations is grabbing hold of your heart? At this moment, in, in our, with our eyes closed, and as we begin to worship together, I want you to open your palms, open your hands, and just give that temptation to the Lord. Your prayer doesn't have to be fancy. Just say, Lord, forgive me for believing in the lie of self-sufficiency. I, I give it to you. Just say it like that. God, forgive me for believing in, in that self-sufficiency, fame, and things will bring me joy, satisfaction, happiness. I recognize it doesn't. So help me, Lord. Just pray it like that. It doesn't have to be complicated. Just come before him. God, we just pray that we all, as, as every one of us here, likely as one of these temptations we are struggling with, and as we all here are giving it up to you, God, we just pray that you would break the chains of the evil one in the name of Jesus Christ. Oh, Jesus, have mercy on us. Look upon us with grace. Set us free through your amazing grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.